Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the Mojave and here we are. Ready for... I don't know, what are we ready for? Summer, I guess. The Swamp Cooler is already running. Cool your whole house for a dollar a day. Up here in the high desert, you know, we get three seasons of absolute beauty and perfection. I'm talking about autumn. I'm talking about winter. I'm talking about spring. And then you get to the summertime. Oh, there are good things about the summertime, I've heard. The swimming pools open up at the high school so adults can stay in their lane, as they say, and swim back and forth with other people swimming back and forth. It's just like being on the I-10 down in Palm Springs, but better for your heart. But we'd better get used to it, so check your swamp cooler pads and get ready to get baked. You know the kind of stuff we love on Desert Oracle Radio. We like strange scenes. We like ancient and modern mysteries. The overwhelming wild landscape of the American West. Mystics and prophets and serial killers and nutcases of all sorts, all stripes. And especially we like the invisible lines that often connect the special worlds. And when that's the sort of stuff that makes your heart sing, then you are going to be a lifetime reader of Eric Davis. as Eric with a K, the host of the immensely valuable Expanding Mind podcast and the author of many books, all of which deserve a place upon the shelves of anyone who shares these interests. The new book is called High Weirdness, and it's about an interesting time when the real and the unreal began merging, when the unreal began revealing itself as very real indeed. Eric Davis, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. That's great to be here, Ken. Well, we I can still remember the first time you still remember gave me a copy of desert oracle i was just elated there was an elation inside a sense of space and possibility of familiarity and a challenge it's wonderful you're trained for that it's true i do like that i do like me some secret codes you are about to go on the road to promote a book that I have been anxiously awaiting, and that is no exaggeration because it is a time that fascinates me more than just about any other time in history, and it happened in California in the early 1970s mostly. Can you tell us a little bit about the book that's coming out? Absolutely. So it started out uh, as a dissertation about Philip K. Dick, and particularly about the crazy experiences that happened to him in the early 1970s. Like I was less interested in his literature and more in his experience and how he wrote his way through trying to understand what happened to him. Then just when I was about to start the dissertation, I said, you know what? I don't want to spend the next three years inside a philotetic brain. I will never come out. So I pulled back at the last minute and went, you know, one of the funny things about his experience, 2374, ballast, pink light, all that stuff, 
is that it's kind of similar to some other stuff that I've been interested in for a very long time, like the weird, serious transmissions that Robert Anton Wilson experienced also in California, roughly similar time. You know, Tim Leary in, in, in prison had these weird transmissions from Sirius that he might have been making up, and it's still the same kind of stuff. Terrence McKenna down there in the jungle a little bit earlier, but same sort of mixture of science fiction and cybernetics and esotericism and psychedelic weirdness and synchronicity and it's like this kind of stuff sort of like religion and it's sort of like craziness and it's sort of like fiction or science fiction it's sort of like magic but it's sort of uh, it's a mixture of all these and i went you know it's a much more interesting question rather than just writing about this one crazy guy to write about a number of crazy guys and then try to say what connects them or why is there this sense of similarity so i chose to focus on dick robert anton wilson and terrence mckenna and then i kind of embed their stories in an account of the early 70s and like you i've all i've been obsessed with the 70s since college there was a little crew of us who actually put out a zine about the 70s because we were all really interested in it for different reasons but we we overlapped in our love and our sense that the 70s still have not gotten proper treatment people don't grok the 70s they think smiley spaces they think shag carpet big mustaches maybe disco ball and those are all appropriate but there's it's much deeper it's a very mysterious esoteric creepy prophetic decade that i think has more resonance not necessarily in a happy way uh but more resonance with our time now than any other moment in american history so i think it's really important to really grok the 70s as much as you can and my route was to take on these wild and weird experiences and these outlandish uh, men and try to just sort of figure out what happened to them or at least how they thought about what happened well it feels to me that that time was a time of gnostic awakening and it was in a fairly small group of people but they all had incredible influence over culture and academics and technology. Did you see anything like that in your studies? Yes, very much. I mean, I, I, one way I think of saying what happened is that partly through psychedelics and partly through the changing sort of religious culture or spiritual seeker culture, occult, uh, occult revival, which is a big part of the early 70s, all these things combined to create a situation where lots of people were having extraordinary experiences. And that's what I call them. I don't say they're spiritual. I don't say they're psychotic. I say they're extraordinary. And they were having these extraordinary experiences, but kind of outside of any context other than this crazy mixed up counterculture, which is itself so full of all these different ideas that's like, what does it mean to have an experience outside of a religious tradition in this kind of period of time and it makes for a lot of weirdness and and for me like i i really take the term seriously like part of what my project is in the book is to is to put some some theoretical and historical heft onto this category of weirdness which we we often use 
we say some experience is weird or a person is weird or something comically read was weird, but we don't really think about what we mean by it. And I think there's a lot hidden in that term and that a lot of it was really prevalent in this particular time. It was influential. The last chapter of my book, I kind of trace some of the connections between these, again, very countercultural characters living in the fringe, you know, kind of, you know, poor or stealing drugs or whatever they're doing. It's they're not like major players in the culture. And yet they were very influential. And those influences went into Silicon Valley. They had to do with the early Internet uh, culture and, and just kind of fed into the zeitgeist in a way that makes us have to take them seriously as, as real, really central crafters in some sense of this peculiar conundrum we find ourselves in today now talking about that intellectual scene and early internet in silicon valley reminds me of jacques valet who was there present in that scene and is now still here present in this revival of ufo interests that's happening and he seems to be kind of on that same steady course even if it doesn't really get through i wonder did you come across any of dr valet interacting with these people absolutely in fact he, he he's featured centrally in my conclusion where i try to at least gently begin to wrap up all the tendrils that connect these people i didn't i didn't end up coming up with a really big idea about why everything was, was sort of similar between these stories but i did draw a bunch of network connections and he plays a very significant role in robert anton wilson's story because in a nutshell uh, Wilson is experimenting with uh, meta-programming, you know, John Lilly's idea of kind of crafting the beliefs that then constitute your, your lived experience. Tons of LSD, tantric sex, and Crowleyan magic. So Wilson is really putting the pedal to the metal on extraordinary experience. And lo and behold, at one point, it just goes, well, a little far. And for a, quite a period of time, he's convinced that He's in communication with these uh, intelligent forces uh, associated with the star system in Sirius, and there's all these synchronicities in his life. And he's basically kind of, after maintaining a, a kind of clever, ironic, do I believe it, do I not believe it, sort of meta-awareness about his own wild experiences, he starts to actually kind of buy it and, and, and sort of loses the plot. So uh, he, at the end of, the, uh, of his account of this, he caused the trigger. He, he has to say, well, how did he get out? Because he got out. He, no longer, he says he's in Chapel Perilous, this place of ontological ambiguity whether, where you either come out skeptical agnostic or a stone-cold paranoid. And he managed to get back to agnostic. And one of the key features of his sort of healing or his escape is an encounter with Jacques Vallée, and it's a very interesting one. I won't go into all the details. They're at a party for Alistair Crowley's birthday, and he tells the story to Vallée, and Vallée's response is very interesting, because he doesn't say, dude, you're projecting, you're, you've, you've lost the plot, get back to reason, you know, here's, take, you know, whatever, calm down, stop taking the drugs, whatever. Instead, he suggests that the worldview that Wilson is in, where there are these aliens communicating with him and all these synchronicities, is itself just part of a larger kind of story or conspiracy that he must be very aware of. That in a way, he's like 
he was like taking the bait by thinking that it was the way that he thought it was. So it's actually not really a very comforting answer. And yet somehow it jarred uh, Wilson into this sort of agnostic, open-minded, mischievous, pleasant, avuncular character that we, we know and love. So Valet plays a very significant role in his story. And then, of course, a very uh, significant role in, this, in the connection between this consciousness underground or, or Aquarian conspiracy that's bubbling up in, in California in the 70s and the emergence of the ARPANET, the Internet, computer conferencing, you know, and eventually becoming a VC in Silicon Valley. So he's had a very interesting, weird place. And I, I've been able to hang out with him a few times. Never felt like we were really, you know, getting down and rolling up our sleeves and drinking a beer kind of connection. But, you know, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to hang out with him for, for a few times. And uh, very interesting character. You know, you never quite know exactly what he holds, you know, what, what, how he, what he really thinks is going on, if... He even knows what he really thinks is going on, but but the uh, the resonances are significant. So I think it it also has something to, to do with the whole emergence of of the network as an idea, as a technology, as a way of organizing social behavior. And we're kind of now sort of going through the, the sort of toxic intensification of all these network effects that maybe at other stages of its emergence had different kinds of visions in store for people. And I think that some of these stories from the 70s actually give us a window into this early network consciousness that is bubbling up and to some extent being engineered. You know, that network consciousness from a lot of these characters, including I was just reading V. Vale's new research, published a 1985 interview with Robert Wilson is very interesting. He's talking about John Lilly trying to set up a bunch of network machines in his house and because he has interesting people visit his home. So the wow. idea is, well, why not have all these terminals so the interesting people are always there? And it's pretty utopian. Yeah. But then we're where we are now, and it's like, well, it's the same stuff. What went wrong? That is the, the million-dollar question. And, you know, there's almost two minds about it. I mean, I, there's a lot of things I could say about what, where and why and how it went wrong. But I think there's two basic reactions to this problem. One is that we were all duped all along, that it was inevitable that the forces of surveillance uh, technology, the military-industrial state, uh, advanced capitalism, bad consciousness, bad faith, that all of those things, you know, entertainment, distraction, the crap of America, the immense nasty karma of this of this land, we're going to win and be the, the major forces in that we were fools to believe, as I did. I don't say I was a believer, but I was definitely into a lot of more utopian ideas around early networking and early computers. And I would say I maybe shipped rather than drank the Kool-Aid out here uh, in California. But I tend to think that it's sort of like what this sort of parallel universe problem that unfortunately we there were there were a number of possibilities there were a wide variety of potentials potential futures forks in the road bifurcations in information space 
And, you know, kind of the way you go like, oh, 2000 election. Oh, almost went. Oh, no, we lost it. Oh, could have been probably in some parallel universe right next door. We, it wasn't the Bush man. But we unfortunately wound up in the dystopian scenario where actually the, the text to be reading to prepare for this moment were, were not John Lilly and, 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 and Raw, although he was dark enough sometimes that and, and paranoid enough sometimes that it, that it does sort of work but it's really kind of more of a cyberpunk reality that we're in which is another sort of 1980s matrix that, that surrounded the enthusiasm around technology but was always much more bleak and, and realistic about the forces of capitalism and control and so here we are and then what do we do with these utopian ideas they look completely silly now or Another way of saying is they're actually not silly. They're just non, we can't implement them given the current platform, which is this platform of advanced surveillance capitalism. Right, which is a control system. So it's a control system and we did not write in a way to omit the control system from the network. Yeah, and there's a lot of inertia. You know, even as there's a lot of disruption, there's a lot of inertia. While I remain cautiously uh, hopeful about certain ways of eluding this thing, it, it, it's, it looks pretty, uh, pretty rough. So there really were good ideas about how to augment human intelligence and human sociality and how to, even if you wanted to be a capitalist, produce new interesting things through that process rather than making human beings themselves the raw material of, of capitalist extraction. But maybe that was that was also in the cards. My approach in the book is really the, that if we're going to figure out where we're going, we just we do have to have a better sense of where we came from and how these things happen and how there's the technology is always haunted. It always has a, a demonic enchanted side and some of it's creepy and kind of demonic and manipulative and some of it is very hopeful and exuberant and celebratory and that it's just a it's a good thing to kind of call up those resonances now because i think it's pretty clear that even though the technology is permeating our lives with algorithms and post-human processes that are technological and digital and in nature that at the same time our sense of reality is starting to mutate and melt down and become haunted and and spooky and bizarre and and weird and that we have to embrace that weirdness go through that weirdness not hide from that weirdness and so that's the way that the stories I tell in this book, which are mostly historical, largely historical, I think are really feeding into our moment. There's this sense of the technology kind of entering into the mystery or, or the, the spookiness and it's haunting the scene. And that's all part of that emergence of, of network consciousness. It's like that book, uh, Yuri, to read that book by... Uh, oh, Paris. I was going to ask you about Yuri Geller because of the nine. I'm, the nine yeah. must show up in your book. You know, actually, I didn't I didn't go into the nine because I, 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 I you know, I, I was at the conclusion. I thought I was going to get to these, these interconnections in the main parts of the book, but I ended up just spending so much time on these individual figures and their stories but I didn't really get to that until this conclusion and there's enough there and I'm like it's too long 
and it's, it's such a can of worms. But I do talk about the the Stargate conspiracy and this idea, which I think is is very worth contemplating. That the kind of there was sort of a meta narrative that was being woven in the '70s about alien contact, about incorporeal forms of intelligence that had something to do with Egypt and something to do with the occult, and it doesn't really ever quite cohere. But it was clearly a very popular meta narrative, and there's a sense that it's sort of being worked. You know, that it's not just a spontaneous upwelling from. The people, and that in itself is part of the, the vibe of the era. Is that there's a sense of kind of engineering behind the behind the veil that that something's being woven together, and I think that's part of what network consciousness is. Is that once you become aware that society is also a network, that it's being you know, you know sort of technically woven together from multiple points of view with multiple agendas, that the very stories we tell through the day. Take on this kind of weirdly engineered quality, or perhaps it was being like they say in the Stargate conspiracy that it was just uh, there was some plot, you know, by a variety of figures to kind of weave together some transpersonal new age meet the aliens kind of mind frame. But when I look at the experiences of the people that I'm talking about, I don't think they're dupes. I don't think they were being beam signals from the from the military intelligence. So there was something. About these sort of patterns that were coming up in the unconscious or the collective unconscious to try to make sense of the major changes that were underway in the era, not just with the emergence of network technology, but all sorts of stuff. Technology, UPC codes. You know, we start scanning on the inside, and then we're sending out machines into the cosmos. Like,、right. what's that? Like, who's who's going to hear that? Like, I'm not saying that they're. There are cosmic entities who are responding to that, but in the collective mind, we have now sent a beacon or a number of beacons out to Jupiter, to Saturn, and there's some kind of reverberation. And whether that's from cosmic forces or from our own cultural narratives, it's really hard to say because we're in this zone where we can't really exactly finally tell the source of things. At least I don't believe so most of the time, anyway. A lot of these deeper mysteries, you know, in a way, like a lot of times people write a big book. It's a big book. We've been working on it for eight years. Some of the stuff in it's been with me for decades. It's a it's a personal magnum opus kind of thing. A lot of stuff in it. But in a way, I feel like I'm just clearing my throat. Like I'm just like, okay, we got that out of the way. Now let's talk about the really hard stuff to think about, which is the stuff about social control. Where do these beliefs come from? How do we explain synchronicities? How do we explain people having, you know, similar types of experiences in different places? You know, the, a lot of the issues that come up with UFO narratives. How do we do this without becoming stone cold paranoid or be, being so agnostic that we don't really take a lot of、uh, evidence or experience seriously? And so we stay in our little rationalist cubbyhole. How do we really move forward with these bigger questions? And I, on that score, I just again just scratched the surface. I just kind of set stuff in motion, or I, I laid out a, a kind of platform for a whole other set of investigations. So would、uh, this but, be like、uh, volume two? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing next. That, you know, who knows? Who Maybe knows? a new a new Bible of some kind? No, nothing like that. I'm not going to write a Bible. But I'm also, uh, I I'm a, I love history. I love countercultural history. There's tons of it. There's so many byways to explore and artifacts to collect and stories to tell. And, you know, people are dying. It's time to get on it, whatever. But I'm also aware that I don't want to be writing and focusing too much on the past because you know we're we're you know, a pretty creepy moment and a lot going on and it seems like you know there's sort of a call to try to stay awake in the present moment and even though i love this stuff there's also a way in which it's like okay what are going to tell you now and that's the the one other reason that i wrote the, the book and i'm happy it's coming out now is that there's the psychedelic renaissance and we read about psychedelics in the new yorker and the new york times and there's this whole medicalized language it's like oh these are going to help us deal with ptsd and end of life anxiety and, and all these problems and it's partly because we're in a mental health crisis in in, in the united states yes. and in the world and there's been no good meds since ssris which aren't that good and that was 50, 40 years ago so but, you know, we're like kind of like in a crisis, like, oh, my God, what are you going to do with all these people? So it's like, oh, look, psychedelics, that'll help. And so there's all these stories coming out about this healing power. and People have these mystical experiences of oneness and then they're healed of their fear and, and their PTSD. They confront their PTSD and they have these things. And I have no doubt that tons of healing does happen to psychedelics. But to tell that story and to make it a mainstream story absolutely requires that the people who are now trying to be the the power elite in psychedelics the doctors the therapists the insurance people the the corporate people who are trying to privatize certain uh, psychedelic medicines and or turn them into medicines those guys they have to repress and erase the rich and bizarre history of countercultural psychedelia and I will not let that happen. Good. I'm going to keep yelling that story from the, you know, from the rafters until they take me down. Because I'm like, look, whatever else you want to say, healing, sacred, uh, neuroplasticity, fed up, psychoanalysis, whatever you want to say. The one thing about psychedelics is that they're really weird yes and you have to take that on in its own terms you are going to go out on the road with this book and i believe you're going to be in los angeles on june 8th is that correct yeah june 8th and june 9th i'm doing the uh reading at skylight books uh, on saturday uh, at five and then i'm, I'm doing a talk uh, both free events free that's right people free and then i'm doing a talk at Zebulon uh, cafe on uh, Sunday. And we can find out more about this stuff where? Your website on the evil corporate internet. Yes, the evil corporate internet, technosis.com, still holding on to that old name, T-E-C-H-G-N-O, S-I-S, and there's an events listings there, and you can find out more about stuff there. Good. We'll have links on the Desert Oracle website as well. It is always a pleasure, and I always have about a thousand more questions whenever I talk to you, so I hope we do it again soon. And good luck with this book. I'm waiting for the UPS driver to drop it on my porch any any day now. 
Beautiful, man. You're going to have a, a nice ride. I, I promise you that. Thank you to Eric Davis. The book is called High Weirdness, and it is out now. Amboy to Zizek's and across the great Mojave wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio. I'm your host, Ken Lane. We broadcast from KCDZ-FM in Joshua Tree. Thanks to Eric Davis and thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for the sounds. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>